Welcome back to the program. The task of bearing witness, even for a journalist, is not to reduce events to their own smallness, but by acknowledging and reporting them to serve both the dead and the living. My guest, Terry Cuvelier, has done that as one of the only journalists to have attended trials of all of our contemporary international tribunals. Yet few such trials are more powerful than that of a mild-mannered math teacher who was one of the principal executioners in the killing fields of the Khmer Rouge. Terry Cruvelier tells this story in his new book, The Masters of Confessions, The Trials of a Khmer Rouge Torturer. Cruvelier is a former editor of International Justice Tribune. He was a 2004 Neiman Fellow at Harvard University and holds a master's in journalism from the Sorbonne. It is my pleasure to welcome Terry Cruvelier here to talk about The Master of Confessions, The Trial of a Khmer Rouge Torturer. Terry, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Before we talk about this particular trial, I want to talk a little bit about your background and covering as many of these international tribunals as you have. And some might look at that and think that there's a certain numbness that must just overtake you after listening to so many of these horror stories over the years. Talk a little bit about that, Terry. Yes, it does It does take its toll gradually. I've, uh, I was covering... Rwanda and Sierra Leone in, in Africa in the early 90s, and then came the creation of these tribunals, which is how I got gradually into covering these war crimes hearings. And then years after years, I just kept doing it because they are fascinating stories, of course, and they say so much about ourselves, about our human nature, about how our societies can transform into criminal states in exceptional circumstances that I kept doing it for quite a while. And yes, there came a point where um, you feel how much has accumulated into your own system. And actually, when I decided to cover the Deutsch trial in Cambodia, I also decided that that would be the last. Uh, it had been about 10 years, and I could feel that um, it wasn't too healthy for me to continue. As you covered all of these, were there certain themes, certain aspects of them that seemed to repeat themselves over and over again that gave you some some insight, some understanding, complex though it may be, into the human condition that creates these kind of individuals and these kind of situations? I guess it's always what we, would, at some point, we want to try to understand without ever managing to um so you know the, people go through it's very contingent it's very gradual it doesn't happen just all of a sudden and the story of doik in a way was that very interesting and extraordinary example on how a good man a good professor of mathematics can gradually get into mass murder I've always tried to, I think I was, I was not hoping to fully understand uh, how do we become stoic, how do we normal beings can, in exceptional political circumstances under terror and fear, become criminals or at least participate in uh, mass crimes. But I was, I was probably hoping to be able to identify the moment where stoic could have made a different decision. 
And it's not easy. It's really not easy. But, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that I still can today with certitude decide when, when was the, the crucial moment where it could have uh, gone a different direction. It's very gradual, that process. It takes a lot of uh, uh, brainwashing also with the ideology. It takes training. It takes personal suffering. Doig goes to prison before uh, he himself runs one. Um, and it takes a whole process, which is long, to make the enemy, meaning the other human being, uh, something that is necessary to get rid of. And that doesn't happen just like in one day. It's a very gradual process. So we do learn things without ever reaching a conclusion that would make us be able to say this is how we can avoid it. Although I have to say that in the Deutsch trial, I found one thing that was very interesting. There was a psychologist expert who, was, who came and gave a very long and very profound, interesting approach on how we human beings can do this and can live with it. And one of the things she said that was a way to prevent it or to, let's say, to protect ourselves more was to belong to different groups. And Doik, in a way, belongs to only one group. It's the Communist Party at the time. And that is, if you belong to a number of different groups, she, the, the psychologist expert said, you may stand a better chance to not be so vulnerable to extreme ideologies and, and the political um, pro, uh, pro criminal projects. You talk about the decisions that, that he might have made along the way. In many ways, this trial and the way he behaved during the trial is is kind of a microcosm of that in that he came forth confessing admitting what what was happening and and even showing some sense of contrition for it and then changed his behavior changed his story partway through the trial yeah the reason why uh, this trial was exceptional and I still wanted to to cover it was that we were in a situation where a man was essentially pleading guilty uh, and he Doik is the only senior former Khmer Rouge who was acknowledging his responsibility and the criminal nature of the, the ideology and the regime he had served. So that was pretty exceptional, but it was also in the legal system, which unlike the U.S., when someone pleads guilty in that sort of much more French legal system, you still have a full trial. So during six months, we could have the voice of the perpetrator, which was very unusual and very exceptional. Doik was, in that sense, uh, yes, uh, an opening into how do we become uh, war criminals that probably was unique at the international level in, in this war crimes uh, sphere. And there was, as you say, at some point at the very end of the trial, his Cambodian lawyer tried to reverse his plea somehow, or at least to indicate that uh, he should not be convicted. But I'm not sure that we can say that Doik really reversed his position. I think probably he realized that he, he wouldn't get 
from his guilty plea, from his expression of remorse, which I think to a good extent was genuine, uh, he couldn't get what he had hoped for. He was still hoping for something from it, a form of redemption, a form of forgiveness, perhaps, from the family's victims. And when he realized that he actually couldn't get that, that's, that's when I think he withdrew and, and started to, to have a very different behavior, which was not to deny what he had said before, but which was not to contribute to it anymore, not to participate in it anymore. And part of it was perhaps um, a sense of survival as well, which is, Doric has to live with his crimes. And we were probably hoping and asking him to admit even more than he was doing. And he couldn't go that far because he still has to live with it. And there's only so much he could admit. And when he realized that even though he had gone pretty far and certainly much further than other former Khmer Rouge, he still couldn't get the, um, the, the forgiveness that he was naively expecting from the families of the victims. And that's when he decided to withdraw. But I don't think he changed his plea, really. How did this trial even come to be 30-plus years after the events? It's always political. The creation of these tribunals, war crimes tribunals, and the, the possibility to implement war crimes trials is always a highly political decision. In the case of Cambodia, yes, it was extraordinary because it was 30 years after the fall of Pol Pot. And the reason, one factor is that the civil war in Cambodia continued another 20 years after Pol Pot was overthrown by the Vietnamese. During that time, the Vietnamese occupied Cambodia during 10 years. And during this occupation, the whole uh, UN system agreed that that means the, including the superpowers like the U.S., like France, like Great Britain, we all agreed to have the Khmer Rouge being still the, legal, the legitimate representatives of Cambodia at the U.N. You know, that's one, ex, that's one uh, reason why, politically speaking, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been possible during that time. Second thing, you have, we have to keep in mind that the three most important people running the state of Cambodia today are former Khmer Rouge themselves. They defected in 1977 before they got purged by, their, by the system, but they, it was still their past too. So how, you know, how fast and how far they wanted any truth about what had happened under the Khmer Rouge uh, was very limited. And uh, so in a way, in Cambodia, you had a situation where pretty much everyone was compromised. The U.S. was also compromised because of their very massive bombing of Cambodia from 1969 to 1973. That was a major factor to reinforce the Khmer Rouge guerrilla. Anyway, everyone was, was pretty compromised in the whole Cambodia story. And that's, that explains largely why it took so long before the tribunal was established, and also why there are very so few people will ever be prosecuted, which is at this point probably three. Talk a little bit about the victims and the families of victims who participated in this trial, given how long it had been since the crimes took place. 
Yeah, another aspect in which this trial was unique at the international level, you know, in front of other war crimes tribunals, victims are not really part of the trial. Like, like you have in the U.S., they come as witnesses, but they are not allowed to be parties. In that system, uh, victims can be full parties to the trials. We call them civil parties. So in the Doi trial, we had that voice of the victim that was also missing in the other war crimes tribunal in Rwanda, Sierra Leone, or in The Hague. And we who have covered these, these trials before, we've always felt that there was a voice missing. And so in the Doi trial, there was that extraordinary week during which the families of the victims of that prison, S21, you have to remember that S21, if you if you went in, you wouldn't walk out alive. There were only like probably about nine survivors of that prison. Three of them were still alive during the trial, but the rest of the civil parties were from the families of those who had perished. And during a week, they were allowed to speak, to, to, to tell their stories. It was an incredibly heavy and emotional week. And that made us realize how much that voice is also important to hear and is also part of the crime because the crime continues after it's committed through the suffering of the families. It was, it was extraordinarily painful to hear how the destruction had not stopped to the very individual they had lost. The destruction continued within the families years, in the years that followed because of that pain that they could never recover from. Talk a little bit about how Duke went from a mild-mannered math teacher to the head of this prison. He is from a rather humble background and manages to be a very good and hard-working student and reach the level of uh, getting access to university level, which at the time, in the uh, early 60s in Cambodia, is only a few, and from his background, even fewer. He's a hardworking, intelligent man, but comes from a, a background where he knows about social injustice under the regime at the time, under the, the royal the monarchy. And as many intellectuals in the 60s, they are sensitive to these ideologies, communism being, of course, the most important one, that promote the, the end of the exploitation and the liberation from these um, forces that, have, that are blocking any social change. So that's really where it comes from. And when he sees the repression against these uh, intellectuals that he had known, against his mentors, the, the professors, he gradually gets into these revolutionary ideas. Then, at some point, when he decides to join the party, which is a clandestine party, he's arrested very quickly afterwards, and he spends two years in jail. And jail then really probably is the end of his uh, process where he's convinced that there is no other way than the armed struggle, and it has to be... Uh, um, anything, the, the, the end justifies the means becomes something that he believes in. And as soon as he's freed from prison, that's when he really, really joins the armed movement 
And very quickly, because of his skills, because he's an intellectual, because he's um, an educated man, the Khmer Rouge used these educated people to run the camps they are creating already in their um, the, the territories that they held, that they hold, and um, that's how it become a prison commander. And that's when that's when it's over in a way. That's when there was no way back. Once he is asked to run that camp, that first camp, which is called M13, which is a sort of prototype of what it's going to be when they when they have power, then he gets into that criminal machine of which he can never walk out. Is there a moment that came out in the trial or that you saw when he ever thinks about the sheer scope of the horror that the regime is engaged in? Yes, and that makes him, I think, very unique, and that's also what made the trial so fascinating, is that Doig is capable of reflecting uh, uh, on himself and on, in, on his own story, but he's also capable to reflect on the ideology he served and on the criminal nature of um, this hardcore communism that he, had, that he has believed in. So yes, I think uh, this trial was, was very special in a sense that it went beyond the, sim- the, the, the sheer facts of the murders, of what the system was, was doing, of these massive killings and purges. It went beyond that into a more profound attempt to reflect on, on, the rev- on revolution and on how these revolutionary ideologies themselves hold the possibility of mass murder from the beginning and how individuals like Doig or like perhaps any one of us in these circumstances we would gradually believe in these ideologies to a point where we reduce the world to a fight between two forces. One that is for mankind and the other that is the enemy of mankind. And so the destruction of that enemy becomes no longer a crime, but a necessity. One of the aspects that is particularly chilling in all of this and it's chilling in and of itself, and also because it is so reminiscent of what went on during the Holocaust, is the meticulous records that were kept. Talk a little about that. Yes, these are regimes that surprisingly tend to keep track of every um, part of the murderous uh, mechanics that they put in place. And that's because they also have, it's the, the irony is that someone like Doug has to justify to his superiors that he has done his job well and that he can prove it. So he does keep his archives meticulously because that means he can, any time his superiors get back to him and said, what have we done with this individual? Or, or what, are, what are your achievements? In, in the, the fight against the enemy, they can always come up with perfectly clean archives on anything he has done with all the prisoners that were sent to him. And so the craziness of the system is that it keeps perfect track 
of its criminal activities. And if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't know. The reason why we know about S21, the reason why we know about Doik, and it is the, the extraordinary archives that they have left behind. Thousands of testimonies, false confessions from prisoners, thousands of pictures of them and biographies. All this material is the biggest source of knowledge we have of how the system worked and it's left behind by the very criminals who have put it in place. And that, that we have seen in many totalitarian regimes. They need to justify, they need to legitimize their own actions. And in that ironic way, they leave behind the traces of their crimes. That is what, that is the dark legacy in a way. And, um, and only because he left the archives behind, we would have the possibility to know how the system worked. Now that begs another question, which is why were they stupid enough to leave it behind? And that we don't know exactly. Doik leaves when the, the Vietnamese army uh, comes in Phnom Penh very quickly, and all of a sudden he has to leave. And in a matter of hours, they all leave. And he hasn't received an order. Nobody has told him to destroy the archives. And since nobody has told him, he's not going to do it, because he doesn't even believe in the defeat of his regime. And so he leaves the archives behind. Perhaps it's also pride. He was very proud of the quality of his work. So perhaps these two factors explain why he left behind the archives when in other prisons we don't have much left. Would it have been different if this trial had taken place sooner, if there hadn't been this 30-plus year gap in between? It's hard to tell. Uh, what, have, what would have been different is that there would have been a few more survivors to come and testify, as opposed to only three. Um, we would have been able to try many more, much more senior people than Doik. Doik is an important person. He's in charge of the most sensitive prison, but he's not at the top. He's not, a, he's not a party of the central he's not a member of the central committee and even less of the, the Politburo. So if it had happened earlier, perhaps there would have been better chances to try the superiors of Doik. When it happens 30 years later, Pol Pot is dead and many others are dead. And actually today, only two are still waiting for their judgment two who were superior to, to uh, Doik. The others died or actually died even during their trial in the last two or three years. So that probably would have been a big difference. After the Vietnamese invasion in 79, he flees and goes back to teaching mathematics in, in northwest Cambodia several years later. Talk a little bit about that. Yes. Doik was a mass murderer between 1971 and 1979, and that's it. From what we know, and we would know by now, he was not, of course, a criminal before, but he was no longer after. Once the Vietnamese army comes in and once S-21 is closed, 
Doig doesn't find any other job in the security system. He becomes useless. The Khmer Rouge no longer, of course, put priority in killing people or in killing themselves. They have, again, a war to fight, a guerrilla war to fight. So the, the, the priority is no longer the police. It's the combat. And Doig is useless in that. Is not of any use for the for the regime. So he sort of he, he keeps hanging out with the movement, but he gradually goes back into teaching, which is what he was before. And he's again a very good teacher that everybody uh, you know loves. And that's the end of his uh, criminal activities until in 1999. He's living in, uh, under a different identity, and a young Irish photographer finds him. And that's the moment where he's going to be arrested, and he immediately says, yeah, this is me, and I, and I accept responsibility for it. Of course, he would have preferred not to be found, but the day he's found, and that's pretty extraordinary, and I think that's, that's a sign of, in a way, of the, the, the genuine part of his confession is that he admits immediately, and at the time he wouldn't know that he would be tried before an international tribunal. Were there others that were part of the Khmer Rouge regime that were ever brought to trial? Well, so Doik was the first trial. Under this international tribunal, first was the, the first accused, and four other big members of the party were supposed to be tried in a second trial. But one was very quickly uh, de uh, declared to be unfit for trial, which is senile. And one died during the trial. So we're down to two uh, other key accused, including Nunchea, who was number two of the regime and who was the former boss of Doig. And we are still waiting today for their judgment, which might come in the, in the next three months, uh, perhaps. And that's it. For the efforts of justice at this moment, that's it. The international part of the tribunal would love to have a few more, but so far the Cambodian government has never agreed on, and there's no reason as of today to believe that they would. However, this is what has been done now, but right after the Vietnamese came in Cambodia in, 1979, in 1979, they did organize a trial, but it was considered as a short trial. The accused were not there. And they, so they made a trial to, to, try, to try Pol Pot and the number three of the regime. But it was a show trial, and highly ideological, run by communists who wanted to be different than the, the, the Pol Pot communists and to show that this was not communism. It was a very ideological thing with no accused. So considered uh, internationally to be relevant and not a fair trial. Do the families of victims feel that any justice was served in this? It's always difficult to talk on behalf of victims. I think that so some victims decided to participate in the trial as civil parties, 94 if I remember well, which is few. For those, I think the feelings were mixed to some extent. They probably felt there was a, a measure of justice, as we say, but it's very hard to know exactly what it was because they suddenly expressed 
satisfaction that Doi could be sentenced to life imprisonment. It was the kind of punishment that they were expecting and that they wanted. But in my experience, what's always a bit troubling is that even though <coughs> sorry, they could have the opportunity to speak, even though punishment was there, they would not reach closure and they would still, their pain would still linger forever until, uh, actually, until they die. Terry Crevelier, his book is The Master of Confessions, The Trial of Khmer Rouge Torturer. Terry, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Have a good day. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.